think that if people in America and people elsewhere across the world start to talk about this injustice and this really abusive system, maybe it would inspire and influence more people in Lebanon to try to fight against it. This week, we talked to an investigative journalist who quit her job so that she could move to another country and report on the unjust way some women are being treated in Lebanon. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. As 2020 winds down, we're checking in with a few of our former podcast guests to see what they've been up to. We last spoke to Lisa Corey back in September 2018. She had just finished an investigative feature about Syrian child brides. And uh, Lisa reached out to us in November about a story that she had just written for the Washington Monthly about the plight of housekeepers in Beirut. Welcome back to the podcast, Lisa. Thanks for having me, Mike. So, you know, just because we have to dot all our I's and cross all our T's, you you came to our attention originally because you were working with Amber Healy, who's one of our producers up in uh, Buffalo. And yet, for some reason, we have a, a lot of guests from uh, Western New York and also from Canada, from Ontario. So it's great to hear you again and sort of check up on you. So what have you been up to since we last spoke uh, in September 2018? So a lot has happened since then. I have continued to travel to Lebanon as a freelance journalist, and I knew I wanted to dive into another investigative story. This one in particular has been on my mind for about seven years since my first adult trip to Lebanon. I had visited the country where my parents are from, and I noticed there are these Black and Asian maids who are treated incredibly poorly. And for seven years, I've thought about it, but I thought it would be too hard of a story to do. There are just so many barriers in the way. And luckily, my last trip to Lebanon, which was summer of 2019, I had the opportunity to interview a maid who had a lot of traumatic experiences. And that really opened up the door for me to go deep and explore this topic. It seems in a way very similar to your approach with the story that you did a couple of years ago that you talked about, about the, the Syrian war brides, the the fact that you were looking for something to cover in Lebanon. But it's interesting also that, the, you know, this is something that you had noticed. How were you able to set up that initial, because, you know, this seems like a, such a difficult story to uh, get an entree into. How did you, you know, find this woman to speak to? So it's really funny because as bad as this sounds, I went to Lebanon this second trip without much of a plan at all. I didn't know I was going to do this story. It was July 2019 when I left Buffalo. And a lot of people asked me, what stories are you going to cover? What if nothing really happens for you to cover? And I said, listen, I'm going... (laughs) I'm going to see whatever I see that stands out to me, I'm just going to dive into. And luckily that trip, two months later, or a few months in, the Lebanese revolution started. So I was there for that. But before the revolution happened, I was about two weeks into my trip. And my aunt said, why don't you come with me to a family friend's house? So I went with her and... I was like, man, I really need to be focusing on work, but I guess I'll go to her friend's house. We get there and her friends start asking me, what are you planning to write in Lebanon while you're here? And I said, well, there's one topic I'd really love to do. It's about the maids who are abused here. 
and they said, actually, you should probably talk to our maid. Her name is Josephine. And the last two houses that she worked for abused her. I said, wow, really? You would let me just interview your maid? And they said, yeah. And I'm like, well, how am I going to do that? She's from Ghana and I, I only speak English. She's like, she speaks perfect English. <laughs> so I sat down with Josephine that night and she opened up to me for almost two hours. She was crying and she was telling me about her past employers who starved her, made her sleep on the kitchen floor, attempted to rape her, you know, verbally abused her, didn't let her speak to their children because they said she would infect them with African diseases. And at the end of the conversation, Josephine took a deep breath, like a sigh of relief. And the next day, because I actually slept at their house, we were far from our where I stay in Lebanon. The next day she told me that for the first time in years, she slept last night because she felt like she got it off of her chest. And I think in that moment, I realized the story is much bigger than me. It's much bigger than me trying to find an article to pursue while I'm overseas. It was really about the fact that so many women in Lebanon, so many of these maids are suffering in secret. and not a lot of journalists can document the specifics of their suffering because, I mean, as you know, Mike, journalism is changing so much and there's not a lot of investigative journalism happening. We just simply don't have the money and resources to send reporters out to spend months on one topic. And, you know, I had quit my job and pretty much taken a leave of absence to spend an indefinite amount of time in Lebanon and for the most part, before the revolution started, I spent a few months focusing on just this. And then obviously the revolution took my attention away from that. And I was finally able to revisit the topic when COVID came uh, and I was stuck at home and I was able to finish the story. So, I mean, you have a narrative, a re very powerful narrative from a fir you know, firsthand narrative from somebody who was, was involved in this topic. Where do, you, where do you go from there to sort of examine the story, the, the, the causes behind this situation in, in Lebanon? Right. So Josephine gives me her side of the story, which obviously was extremely traumatic. And then I needed to find the facts, the data, the research to back up her story and to prove she's not just experiencing such abuse. So I did continue to reach out to different maids, but I also started reaching out to organizations that try to help them. For instance, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have been issuing reports for years about the abuse maids endure and they've been calling on the Lebanese government literally for decades, asking them to end kafala. Kafala is the, the system I discuss in my article that allows this abuse to take place. So those organizations were extremely helpful. I was interviewing people on the ground in Beirut who have really been advocating to end this sponsorship system. But on top of that, there was one group in particular, it's an advocacy group that really helped take my article to another level and helped me really learn what's happening in the scene and expose it. There's a group called This is Lebanon. They were founded by former migrant domestic workers who were abused. They operate on Facebook. So they have a group and their mission is to save maids who are trapped in abusive situations. 
So because the Lebanese government is so negligent, not just on maids, the Lebanese government is negligent on its own people. There's no reliable judicial system or police enforcement or rules or laws that can protect these maids. So where can they go? They go to this Facebook group. And this group literally gets thousands and thousands of messages a year uh, from women saying, can you please help me? I haven't been paid in months. Can you please help? I've been sexually assaulted. Can you please convince my boss to let me leave or let me go home or let me go back to Africa? And there are people behind the Facebook group who then contact the employers and say, if you don't let this person go, we will do X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's kind of bizarre. It's kind of crazy. But when you live in a country where there are no rules and there is no proper system in place to take care of people, this is what they have to do. So the people behind this group, in particular, this woman who goes by the name of Patricia, I can't say her real name because um, she, she fears that the Lebanese government or past employers would come after her. She and I have been speaking for over a year. And she was giving me contact information of maids who may want to talk to me on record. One of those maids was Constance, who I feature in my story. And Constance was forced to have an abortion when she got to Lebanon, which if, if anyone's interested in learning that story, it's all in the article. But to make a long story short, I learned from Patricia <clears throat> about the fact that two maids are dying every single week in Lebanon. She provided me with the figures from the Lebanese general security, which most people don't get their hands on. A lot of journalists aren't allowed to. Um, I learned about <clears throat> maids who have been found dead and how most of their death certificates are ruled a suicide. And I was connected to so many maids who I got to interview who were not featured in the piece uh, who told me their traumatic stories. And that all ended up going into my research and helped me prove the fact that this is one of the world's greatest injustices. And somehow it's severely underreported, not to mention it's happening all while people in the U.S. are leading this Black Lives Matter movement, um, yet they're not really discussing the fact that this exists. You know, what do you credit it for this lack of covering for? What do you, what do you see as the, maybe some of the causes of it? In the States specifically? Yeah. I mean, you bring up, you bring up Black Lives Matter, which originated in the United States and is, you know, although other countries are, have sort of embraced the, you know, the slogan, but also embraced the, uh, the message that they're trying to get out there. So by drawing that comparison, then you seem to be saying, you know, it's not known enough in the United States. Yeah, so I think there's a few reasons. Number one, Americans don't really have a reason to be emotionally invested in such a small country. Lebanon is this really, really tiny place in the Middle East that the U.S. has no stakes in. You know, we don't get oil from there. We don't really trade with them. They don't benefit us and we don't benefit them. And so us as Americans, we've grown up not really learning about Lebanon simply because we don't have to. Let's take it a, a different tact because I think really what I was more interested in was not so much why it's not covered in America. You know, is it, is this an issue that's even discussed in Lebanon? I see for a while, this wasn't really an issue discussed in Lebanon. 
you know, it, it's hard to say, why don't Americans care about it when people in Lebanon for so long didn't even care about it? What I found by talking to people in Lebanon right now, especially millennials and the people who are leading the revolution over there, is that they're really nothing like their parents. Not to say their parents are bad, not to say that their parents didn't pass down great things, but there's this new generation in Lebanon that's leading the revolution. And when the Black Lives Matter movement began in America, it kind of sparked this conversation overseas. And we started to see at Lebanese protests, people bringing signs that said, you know, end kafala or even calling kafala slavery. And there was all these young people. So who employs the maids? Well, it's a lot of the older people in Lebanon. There's this movement that has been sparked to end it. Now, I personally don't think it's a very powerful movement. It's not millions of people fighting against kafala. But it's a start. And I think that if people in America and people elsewhere across the world start to talk about this injustice and this really abusive system, maybe it would inspire and influence more people in Lebanon to try to fight against it. I remember when you talked to me about uh, the, the story with the Syrian war brides that you had a real hard time selling that story, I seem to remember. It took you a long time to sell it. Did you have a similar experience with this story? I did. I'm fortunate this time around that I'm now a contributor at Washington Monthly, so I did have the option to publish with them. But I wanted to first try and see if anybody in the mainstream media would be interested in taking the story. So I pitched it to almost every newspaper in the States that you could think of and not one of them was interested. So yeah, that's my answer. So what was it they were telling you? Did they give you a reason why they were passing on the story? Some of them did, some of them didn't. I remember a couple did say it was budget reasons. I know there's journalism is really suffering right now financially. And a lot of places just aren't hiring freelancers. No matter how great the topic is, they just don't have it in their budget. And I think that really speaks to what's happening in journalism right now, because you can have this really important story that people should really know about, but it doesn't matter because when there's not money available, unfortunately, as bad as it sounds, you know, and it's not like I was asking for much. I actually wasn't asking for anything. You know, the fact of the matter is they just can't do it. Yeah. Well, I don't want you to, to you know, do these really great investigative pieces and not get compensated for it. I think you should at least make sure that you're asking for something for it. It says a lot about you that, well, one, you, you go to Lebanon where you have family and you know, your family has from and it, with no preconceived ideas, particularly what story you want to cover. And then you're, you're able to, you know, take a, a grain of an idea and sort of grow it into this, this bigger impactful story and then find a platform for it. There's that. I mean, it would be nice if, you know, you would be able to do this type of, of reporting and there was, you know, there are more places where that would be interested in covering it, you know, places maybe with a wider audience that you get more eyes on it. I think that would be nice. <laughs> you know what, Mike? That's actually my daily struggle in my career. <laughs> I uh, I have a full-time job. I, I work at a TV station. But that's because, and I love that station so much, and I love the people there, but it's because I need a steady income. I go to Lebanon and I write because I'm passionate about it, but to tell you the honest to God truth, 
I don't get paid much and I spend more than I make when I'm there. So I'm consistently trying to find a way to have a stable life, but also be able to live out my passion and write these pieces. And I'm starting to realize I can do it, but I will need a job along with it. This can't be the only thing I do as much as I want that to be the case in the world we live in and in the way journalism is going. I have to also have a job, which it does make it a bit more difficult for me. Definitely keeps me busy. But, you know, once a story comes out and I feel really fulfilled with it, it ends up being worth it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to dissuade you from that. I mean, it's it's certainly, you know, you, you understand the sacrifice. You're, you're spending more time or you're spending more than probably what would be a smart person would or or a budget smart person would uh would maybe spend but at the end the end result is you're you're creating something of value something that that you value and you know it would just be great if the compensation that you got at the end would be able to help you more easily go on to your next assignment now you know before we turn on the mics you talked a little bit about the impact of this story in Lebanon, you know, what what did people think of it or what did they think about having this this issue brought brought out in the way it, that you did? I was really pleased with how people responded to it and received it. For a really long time I was scared to put this story out. Probably is going to sound bad, but I was worried about disappointing my community. Um as I mentioned, my mom and dad are from Lebanon. Um, I come from a really big Lebanese community here in Buffalo. And, you know, the fact of the matter is most people have maids. When me and my parents go to Lebanon, we get a maid. Do we abuse her? No, absolutely not. We pay, we pay more than, you know, expected and more than anyone else does. We treat her like family, but this is a really sensitive topic. And by calling out something that's so negative and so bad about Lebanon, I thought that maybe people would be like, oh, Lisa's just another journalist who's making Lebanon look bad. I mean, it's such an amazing and beautiful country. And unfortunately, Lebanon doesn't get a lot of positive media attention. And, you know, rightfully so, that frustrates people. I didn't want to be just another journalist constantly pointing out the negatives. But the fact of the matter is, don't we have to do that to make a place better? I mean, I'm very passionate about my culture and I love, love Lebanon as a country. I love the people there. I love the culture. I'm proud to be Lebanese. And with that, I want to see Lebanon be better. I want to call out the things that are wrong so that hopefully, you know, in my lifetime, I could see them be right. And and I can take my kids there one day and I can be proud of all of it. And I took a risk by, you know, putting this out there and maybe disappointing some people. But I think the reason I was pleasantly surprised is because it was people from Lebanon who were sharing the article, who were saying Kafala needs to end, who were saying they don't want to see this happen anymore. And uh, I think I underestimated how much they care and how much they want to see these women treated right too. Yeah. Not just because it's, it reflects poorly on their country, but also it's the right thing to do that the, these women are suffering and, you know, to respect them and to, to respect human life and human dignity. 
that practice has to end. Both of these assignments, these really kind of big assignments that you did, you traveled to Lebanon, you had no really sort of preconception of what you're going to do. Are you planning any other trips going forward? Are there any other ideas that you, you know, at some form that you're thinking about covering like this again? I am and I was. <laughs> the the COVID-19 pandemic really changed my plans. I was planning to go summer of 2020 and obviously that didn't pan out. And on a personal note, I'm getting married in August. So my fiance and I are trying to save our finances <laughs> and work toward, you know, doing that and having a wedding. Not to say it's going to be an extravagant one, but I've had to sort of take a step back and, you know, reprioritize things for the coming year. But absolutely. I mean, I see this as a lifelong passion. I see myself anytime I go to Lebanon, you know, finding a new project, finding a new topic and writing about it. I do have a couple that I never got to finish. One, I'll say it here. I've never really said this before, but I have started a story about the mistreatment of people with disabilities in Lebanon. And I have started some interviews about that and some research about that. And I would love to, the next trip I have, complete that story. But I definitely want to do this for the rest of my life. And I don't know how I'm going to do that <laughs> financially and personally, but I don't know. I, I think I found my dream job and I want to try to find a way to continue doing it. You seem like to be pretty good about figuring these, these things out, even if you don't have an idea to start with. And at least this time, like like you did with, you had the idea for the maid story, and then you were able to sort of open that up once you got there, and you were able to to find a source and blow that up, and turn it into a real story that you could sell. Hopefully, you'll be able to do the same with the other once you uh, make it back to Lebanon. Congratulations on your your upcoming wedding. What do you see is the, is the biggest challenge for you in covering these types of stories? Hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a great question because I feel like each one comes with so many challenges. I think the biggest challenge is finding a balance in my life to, again, have stability, have a steady income, but also be able to travel to Lebanon, lose money, and pursue stories that I really care about. And as time goes on and as I get older, it becomes more complicated because now you know, I'm going to start a family of my own. Hopefully I'm going to be more responsible for myself and my, you know, my finances, my family's finances. And this path that I've chosen is not fiscally smart. So it's just, once I get to Lebanon and once I find stories I'm passionate about, that's not really the challenge. Of course, that comes with its own challenges, but you find a way and, and you make the story work. I think Really, the challenge is finding a way to execute those plans and and to balance it with your own life. Because as we were talking about earlier, you know, unfortunately, you you can't make a career out of this financially. And and I don't know where investigative journalism is going to go in the future. I don't know if there's a way where, you know, I could get a job for a newspaper or a magazine or a digital platform where my sole purpose is to investigate these in-depth topics. But right now, that's not really a job that exists in 2020. And so I have to personally find a way to make it happen. 
Lisa, thanks for coming on the podcast again and sort of updating us on what you're doing. You know, we'll, we'll include a link to the story uh, that you wrote for Washington Monthly. It's a great read, as was your earlier story about the um, Syrian uh, war brides. I wish you luck going forward. You, you seem like somebody who uh, has a passion and you, you figure things out so that you can continue to feed that passion. Good luck as you go forward. Thank you so much, Mike. That really means a lot. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.